This is The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello. Today, it's the latest edition of Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between the Music Hall in Portsmouth and NHPR. We're speaking with Aaron Brockovich, environmental activist and author of the new book, Superman's Not Coming, Our National Water Crisis and What We the People Can Do About It. We spoke virtually in front of a live audience and began our conversation with a discussion about why she chose to write this book now. Oh my gosh, where do I even begin? So the book Superman's Not Coming came over 20 plus years of my work in communities. And I felt oftentimes I was the bearer of the bad news because they would be all happy that the EPA was there. And they just, I don't want to ever say that it was taken for granted, but there was this idea for all of us that when an agency like that was present, that everything would be taken care of. And I used to always say, well, I hate to inform you, but Superman's not coming. And it was kind of, you know, laugh about it, but it was really serious. And so it's just through my work of seeing where agencies are absent, where there's been system failures, and most important to me, where communities see and believe that these agencies at some level have had or will have their back. And I'm surprised because I do get feedback, you know, Superman's not coming feels very daunting, but (laughs) I think it's fabulous because the rest of the title is, and while it's about a national water crisis, it's what we the people can do about it. And so in the book, I share stories of people throughout America who are actually not waiting for something to come down from the top, but are getting active, off the couch, involved in their own backyard, and they're making change. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting into the details of that with you, figuring out the the why of why people want to act, uh, and also diving into agencies like the EPA and, and other regulatory bodies that to varying degrees of success, managed to to create healthy water supplies, good water supplies for people. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things in this book that that you raise alarm bells about. Some you've been raising alarm bells about for years, including uh, and people who've watched the the movie will will be familiar with uh, hexavalent chromium because that's kind of what what set you on this journey. Uh, you write about here uh, the fact that that Hinkley, California where you first encountered this, uh, is still to some extent dealing with it, and hexavalent chromium in general has not fully gone away. Can you talk a little bit about the the persistent problem? Yeah, so, uh, my gosh, when I began my work out in Hinkley, I, I was a young girl. I was 31. I cannot believe that all this time has passed since my work in Hinkley, since the release of the film, and we still don't have chromium-6 regulations uh, federally, or in 49 states, California is working on it, that the conversation is still being had and it's way more important today than it was then. And so how do I start in Hinkley? I was born and raised in Kansas. I'm pretty simple, hardworking Midwest girl. And my difficulties in life was school because I'm a dyslexic. So oftentimes I found myself somewhere outside because that's where I felt embraced. I was fascinated with water. My dad was an engineer and he knew things that I didn't know, but he would sing me songs just to kind of put it in my mind or in my heart about water 
and enjoy it today for someday it might not be seen. And that kind of like terrorized me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't fathom that. Could we, any of us imagine that not having water? I mean, come on, it, we wouldn't be here. And he promised me that in my lifetime, water would become a commodity, would become more valuable than oil. Uh, he's going to be right. And that moment is here. So what I saw and learned in the environment helped me find myself and my own common sense because school wasn't my thing. I was smart enough, but I didn't think the way I guess people thought I should. So I always felt in a box. So when I got out to Hinkley, I could feel, first of all, um, something that was oppressive or suppressive. Something was going on. My power of observation became very keen, and we all have these gifts. I'm like, where are all the trees dead? Hmm. That's weird that the cows are covered in tumors. Oh, I think the two-headed frog is bizarre, and the water's green. So at that point, I became really curious, very rooted in what I saw, and that this was wrong. So that was the beginning for me. And of course I met uh, the single mom and I'm gonna interject here and we can get back to that. But I am sure. telling you in the book, in Hinkley, everywhere I go, uh, in and out of communities across this country, it starts with one mom, one mom who's upset because a child has been harmed or someone in her family is sick and she's got that gut feeling something's not right. And she stays with it every single time. That person was Roberta Walker. So as we got to talking and I learned more and went into the waterboard, lo and behold, sitting in this agency were documents that as I read, clearly were telling me, uh, there was a plume map. So it was showing the boundaries and it was talking about not chromium, which these people were told it was, which is healthy and good for you, it was hexavalent chromium. So when I began my work in Hinkley, it was like putting pieces of puzzle together, but it began with just really being rooted in with what I saw wasn't right. And I wasn't going to let somebody tell me that what I saw, I didn't see or that I was crazy. I was like, yeah, no, that that's not what I see. And that's not what's happening. I never thought that this chromium-6 would continue to be a problem in Hinkley today. It's way far worse than anyone thought. Matter of fact, the whole town is gone. PG&E owns all the land. They're gonna be under a corporate cleanup for a hundred years. And that chromium-6 and environmental working group had come out and done a study several years after the film came out. But that two thirds of our drinking water system across this country has varying levels of hexavalent chromium in it. And that I would still be fighting for regulations and better oversight for this chemical in America's water supply. And why do you think that is? Why do you think the uh, outrage at the level of our government isn't loud enough to prevent this chemical from spilling over into water supplies, not just in Hinkley, but throughout the country? There's, there's a couple of reasons. So one of the first things that happened in Hinkley, California, was it was a cover up. And it began in the 50s. And these cover-ups usually begin um, because somebody's afraid that they missed the information, they covered up the information, that they're going to lose their job. Um, there's a disconnect between the company and what's happening on the ground, which is, goes on way more often that, than I'm comfortable with because that company with its people and employees, they should be connected on the ground and having 
the ability to communicate with each other, but there was this huge disconnect. What this company was doing is something that we see happening across the board. They have old antiquated systems and business models. Clearly today we're learning will not service moving forward into better water, better municipalities, better infrastructure, because they're always looking to take a shortcut and kick the can down the line. And that's problem number one. Problem number two is oftentimes agencies and the first department in California that went out to Hinkley that notified and saw the green water and tested it and found out it was hexavalent chromium was the health department. But they didn't know much about hexavalent chromium and the information just sat there. So how information comes in and how it's disseminated into other portions of these agencies like falls through the cracks. So that was number two. And then um, from there, you know, you have state oversight. Oftentimes a company like PG&E who, you know, hires every PR firm and every scientist and every university in the state, when you try to go get information, there's like, no one wants to talk about chromium six. And then an oversight like the EPA. Here's the thing. EPA has extraordinarily well-meaning, intelligent, wonderful, hardworking. They want to help change the world people in it. But oftentimes they get that in that box. They're put in a box. They're restricted. You can't do this. You can't do that. Or they don't get information. So there, there's hexavalent chromium. Uh, and then there are a variety of other chemicals that you talk about. One of particular interest here in New Hampshire is uh, PFAS contamination, PFOA contamination. Uh, you write about in the book uh, instances of, of this in New Hampshire. I wanted to ask you, how widespread are these? What have you found in the course of your research about how widespread PFAS and PFOA are? I think this one chemical could be a really good way to explain how the system works and where the failures are. So PFC are perfluorinated chemicals. And what happened was DuPont and 3M and about seven other very large manufacturing and companies took 3000 different chemicals and threw them into one to create the PFCs. So one of those chemicals is called PFOA, perfluorooctanoic acid. So PFOA you'll know is Teflon. Uh, the PFOS you're going to know as Scotchgard, uh, it's in textile industry, it's in uh, fireman's gear, it's in, um, you know, flame retardants, in, in bedding, and in children's, you know, 90s, and furniture, and then the firefighting foam. Back in the 70s, the manufacturers notified the EPA that this was going to be a dangerous chemical. This is one of the first places that I want to stop and go, okay, so here's one of the first problems. Our EPA and its agency allows chemicals into the marketplace first before they're studied. Now, if you look at the FDA, you're going to study it first before we allow it into the marketplace. So the EPA and how that's set up is a little ass backwards, if you ask me. So they're notified that a dangerous compound is coming in. So the EPA sets a guideline and a guideline is just that. It's not an MCL, which is a law of 400 parts per trillion. 
Okay, that's the first thing I want to, th second thing I'll go talk about here. How do you come to a level of 400 parts per trillion on an unknown chemical that you've let into the environment that the manufacturer is telling you is going to be a problem? Oh my gosh, I get so upset, I just spit on myself. So it's like, why would we not have stopped there? So now they have a guideline of 400 parts per trillion. All the municipalities are notified that they can run that chemical through their system up to 400 parts per trillion. As long as it's below 400 parts per trillion, you don't have to report it. What are the consequences for reporting something that's over 400 parts per trillion? If it's just one, not much. If it gets anything larger than that, um, then usually they'll say you have to look at your filtration, what's happening at the municipal level, what are you doing? Why are these breakthroughs occurring? They'll start looking for polluters or the polluter, things like that. So time goes on, right? Decades go on. When a chemical enters the environment like this one, the EPA has to designate studying the science. That's their first job is to commission a study. One, these studies cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. And this is an agency that doesn't and is clearly not getting its funding anymore to even conduct these studies. And two, science takes a long time. I think we're in a place now where science is catching up with policies. But to study one of these chemicals, to conclude what it can or cannot do in the environment and to public health and welfare, can take 10, 12, 15 years. So in 2016, the science was coming in on this group of chemicals and it was a hello Houston, we have a problem. It's like, oh my God, shocker, you let a chemical into the water that's dangerous and now you're surprised that you've got studies that it can cause thyroid cancer and testicular cancer and infertility and miscarriages. So when the EPA is notified of that, they have to notify all the municipalities. Oh my gosh, this 400 parts per trillion is too high. It's a health problem. So we're going to drop it to 70 parts per trillion. Well, then all the municipalities are like going, I don't have the funds to put on the appropriate filtration system because you told me it was 400 parts per trillion to bring it down to 70 parts per trillion. Then they have to notify the consumer. Guess who the consumer emails? Me. Are there ways to remediate a, a situation like that? Like, are there filters that work for PFAS? There are ways and there is technology and more technology on how to. Now, one thing about PFAS and it's been known all along, the reason it's called forever chemicals, it's really hard to get out of the environment. It can be done. We have to look hard at technology and new technology, ways to draw the contaminant out of the aquifer and clean it and then re-inject. So there are some solutions out there. But what happens is they usually become cost prohibitive. In Superman's Not Coming, you talk a lot about chloramine, which is a substance that is added to uh, municipal water supplies uh, that is sometimes used to, to great effect, but, but often uh, yields real problems. And uh, I was surprised to hear that uh, ammonia of any kind was added to drinking water, but 
there it is uh, as part of chloramine. Can you talk a little bit about chloramine and, and what it's meant to do and what it uh, has done yeah. as an unintended consequence? Oh, yeah, that was a big eye roll on my part. Uh, you know, we could save uh, if we could pass oversight that just said no more ammonia in the water, we would have less lead outbreaks. We would have way less Legionnaire outbreaks, which is deadly, by the way. And we would have less destruction to an already corroded and antiquated aging infrastructure. So adding ammonia to the system is bad. So here I'll give you water 101. Most of our, yes, we get water from aquifers, but most of our water will come from surface creeks, rivers, tributaries. Depending on the times of years, they may do a blend of both. They may be using one versus the other. When water comes into the municipal system, it contains organic matter. And I've been at too many community meetings where I can see them like going organic matters is something scientific because, you know, uh, what is that? So I work with the water expert, Bob Bocock, who's phenomenal. He's a level five water operator. He's a water master. And I said, so what's the deal with your, your big science word on organic matter? And he goes, oh, yeah, Aaron, that's dirt. I mean, see, that's all you needed to say. You know, sometimes we say things and we make it complicated and it's not. It's dirt. It's fish poop. It's in the water. So when it comes into the system, we chlorinate it, right? Because we don't need E. coli outbreaks and we all understand that. So when you have organic matter come in and you use chlorine, you create a very toxic chemical called trihalomethanes, THMs, which is highly regulated by the Safe Drinking Water Act. So when municipalities can't control their THMs, they're supposed to put on the appropriate filtration systems. But here's where we talked about that cheap, going cheap on the upfront and just kicking the can down the line, because these filtration systems are expensive. You know, a municipality down in Alabama spent $100 million just to keep one chemical, PFOS, out of the system. So it's very expensive. So what they do is they start adding ammonia to the system because what it really does is mask the THM problems, again, a Band-Aid, but it creates a whole lot of other problems. Ammonia and chlorination together. Ammonia will sequester the chlorination and it's less effective. Guess what happens there? You start getting more bacterial buildup. You start getting Legionnaire's disease. It also causes the water to be very corrosive so and angry. It's, it changes its pH. You know, water is not just water. There's no two bodies of water anywhere the same on this planet. It is as unique and individual as we are. And you can't just willy-nilly switch river waters or just start throwing ammonia on top of chlorine and not dealing with your trihalomethanes because if you've got antiquated aging lead pipes, you now have corrosive water. Is Guess that what, what that happened does? in Flint? No, Flint switched river waters. Most of the other sites, and we talk about Hannibal in the book, they're adding the ammonia mm -hmm. to the system. So if we could just stop that and have 
federal or state or even local regulations. In Hannibal, they did it right at city council, by the way, through a vote of the people not to add ammonia. And by the way, they now have lead-free water. Um, you have to understand what it does and when you do and people respond because usually you'll know if you have a chloramine issue or if you're going through a chloramine burn because uh, you'll see, you know, uh, pipes, the, the water will change because the pipes are corrosing, being corroded through the distribution system, which is many, many, many miles coming from the municipality to your tap, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is a completely unregulated system. And, and, and so when, when you say burn, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. When you say burn, uh, that's a, a sudden change in the way the municipality's handling its water system, right? I believe you wrote about uh, they will right. time burns for when they are going to do an annual test so that the test numbers look better than they normally do, which is why the water isn't consistent in some places throughout the year. It changes uh, based on when the city knows it's going to be able to do its testing. Correct, but they also do chlorobene burns because they've got overgrowth and bacteria in the system and they're going to try to burn them out. They do chloramine burns like when there's a hurricane and water intrudes, you know, um, river water, lake water, polluted water from a hurricane. It surges, it gets into the system. You can have bacterial issues. So they'll come in and do chloramine burns, uh, chlorine burns, and they're usually finding they have legionnaires somewhere. Hmm. So they're going to push a mass amount through to burn it out. Mm -hmm. I believe you wrote in the book, and correct me if my memory is, is not serving me, that there are some communities that do a good job with regulating their chloramine. I think you named Denver and Boston as cities that, that do a good job, uh, in part because there's so many miles of pipe, and that has an impact on, on how well chloramine can serve a particular location. This is true, but there's very few of them. And in Denver, Colorado, it's, you know, they have pretty pristine water. They don't do a lot of blending. So there's only a few. So when the majority of the municipalities have to add ammonia and we have more Legion outbreaks in this country than we've ever seen and more lead contamination, you know, those two locations, those states could allow them to continue to do that. But it's a band-aid. It's not fixing the problem. The problem that we have is we've got to stop adding chemicals to the water. And there's other ways. If you just follow the Safe Drinking Water Act, it's a pretty good document. We would have less problems. But this comes down to money. And this comes down to a shortcut. And this comes down to a way to cheat the system, put a band-aid on it, kick it camp down the line. And we're just seeing explosions of illness and disease across the country. It's not working. So we are going to have to address the chloramine issue. So if people listening now are curious about what's happening in their water system, I mean, to what extent are municipalities required to disclose the results of their, their testing of the water that they're sending to people? You should be getting a yearly report at least. Some states will ask them to do them quarterly. If you haven't seen in the bill a municipal water report, don't hesitate to ask for one. You know, this Google thing we have is pretty interesting. You can jump on there and put in a zip code. You'll find out a lot of information. EWG tracks that really closely. Um, now, having said this, and I, and I in all fairness, and I, I never say anything not to be fair or to point the blame, but we have problems. There are municipalities that do good. And the chloramine is something that they'll address and it could be at a level that 
isn't going to be alarming or it hasn't gotten out of control where they're seeing outbreaks of legionnaire or lead contamination. That's far and few between, though. So, What about people who get their water from wells? There's, there's no regulation for that. So what can they do? They, do they sort of have to test their own wells and make sure that it's safe? And uh, how often do you think they should be doing that? Yearly, for sure, depending where you live. And so well water is a system off the grid. I'll tell you 10 times out of 10, we find not to scare people. You know, knowledge is power. This is it. And I don't want it to be scary or, you know, it's the end of the world. It's not. It is a message for all of us to not assume, to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions because that knowledge is powerful and it's empowering to the consumer. But most of my worst contamination cases have been lurking in well water, a system off the grid. So test every year, again, depending where you are, test quarterly. Yes, that falls in those costs and some of these tests are expensive on the well owner. Most well owners, if the state comes out and tests, they're just looking for E. coli. They're not gonna run a sweep of a hundred different chemicals. So that falls to the well owner. To this conversation, Hinkley was all well water. In the book, we talk about um, Hoosick Falls, upstate New York, where St. Gobain and a family, again, one woman, mom, something was up, had her well tested and found this chemical. So they ended up marching in Albany and had a statute of limitations problem, but because they showed up, the state changed its statute of limitation time so these people could move forward in some legal recourse. But they were on well water, but it was because somebody noted something was wrong. They weren't sure what it was. Maybe I should test my water. We got this question from uh, Diana about ammonia in the water. Uh, Diana asks, is there a petition already going forward to push for a nationwide mandate to prevent adding ammonia and other quote-unquote, cleansers to water, water supplies? Well, we're just kind of getting to the conversation about water um, and that we have these problems, so nothing that's in effect. But again, so talking about Hannibal, Missouri, very quickly, a group of moms came, and they had lead in their distribution system and in certain points along the line higher than what the readings were in Flint, Michigan. So they came to us, we went and worked with that community and they began to inform the community and these are who ran for city council and they passed a law. So even at a very local level, you can have no more ammonias. So this is where I was talking about even a Merrimack where you can organize as people show up and say, you don't want the use of ammonia in your system. So you can have federal oversight doesn't really always work. Uh, it's there and it's helpful and it's there for a reason, but we got system failures all over the place. You have state, same thing. You can get your most effective work done as a community, collectively, with your own city council. I've seen it happen over and over again. So to the point of chloramines in Hannibal, it was the city council that mandated no more ammonia. So city councils are, are a good place to start. 
They are. And, you know, I've been to many myself and, you know, a lot of times they don't know what's always going on. If we don't show up, right. They're not mind readers. We need to show up. I wanted to ask you about lead pipes. You write here that there are millions of miles of lead pipes still in the country. Is there any way to make lead pipes safe or should they all just systematically be pulled out and replaced? Well, I think that we're, we're going to have to look, well, yeah, uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, you know, um, that's a water operator that every time they turned on the ammonia feed, it's in the book and the water operator, Randy, was great because he did something strange. He actually listened to the consumer who called and said, what are you doing over there? Our skin's burning. Our eyes are burning. You know, the water's a different color. And so he listened. He's like, what is going on? What have I done different? He goes, oh, I turned the ammonia feed on. He turned the ammonia feed off. Guess what happened? Call stop. So management came in and said, you need to turn that ammonia feed back on. Here came the calls again. Long story short, they learned that it was completely destroying their distribution system. They had to replace it. So we already have antiquated aging infrastructure. And when you deteriorate it that much further, you're looking at replacement. But they don't use ammonia system anymore. We are going to have to, and I know this current administration is looking at very large infrastructure bills because we're going to have to upgrade it. You said in this book that that water is not political because no matter what political party yeah. you're a part of, you want clean water. Um, that said, you you do have some harsh words for the Trump administration and, and how they went about regulating and, and gutting the EPA. We got a question from uh, Elsa who, who asks about that. Elsa says, President Trump gutted the EPA. Has it been restored under President Biden? The conversation is had, and that's what I wanted to say earlier. And I don't know the... They just passed a good water bill, which was bipartisan. I was They were working together. That's what we need to see. You know, the Republicans and the Democrats, doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, none of you want to see your child poisoned. Y'all want safe water. The conversation is have, starting to happen clearly on the waterfront. I listened to it last night. I think I even tweeted, hey, you're stealing some of my lines because I've been saying for a while, water is a clear and present danger. The conversation is being had and the ball is moving again. We did get delayed on, on the EPA being you know, set aside and, and throttled back. Um, and a lot of things did go wrong in that administration with that agency. But we're gonna have to come back in this new administration and help build it back up, help fund it back up. And I think that process has begun, and I was glad to see that both sides of the aisles agreed on it. And water isn't political, and it does frustrate me. I was born and raised in a Republican family. My dad and mom were the greatest people. My dad ran the pipelines for Citigroup, for Texaco. That's where I learned everything about water and about infrastructures, and that nothing could be more important. You'll never convince me just because you're one side of the aisle or the other, that the other side does or doesn't deserve clean water, ever. And it frustrates me that water has become as political as it has. So I was pleased to see a new water bill, both sides working together, that the conversation is had. 
We're not going to have a fix overnight. And I think we as the people need to keep that momentum going, that conversation going and get more involved. We get this question from uh, Will Walheim, uh, associate professor in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment, co-director of the Water Systems Analyst Group. Uh, He's at UNH. And he asked uh, about President Biden's speech last night. Uh, He said that in his infrastructure bill, uh, he would replace all lead pipes. Uh, are you optimistic that this plan would be successful? With the understanding, it's not going to happen overnight. I think that's where we get frustrated and we start out on a good note and it takes too long or it needs more money or there's frustration or we stop. We have to follow through on this and we have to be realistic. Yes, we have to get rid of our lead pipes. And like I said, is that um, getting rid of it and replacing it or is it beginning to build alongside of it? But I think that we need to be reasonable that this is going to be a long journey, but it's one that needs to start. Mm-hmm. Well, as people come together and they, they rise up and try to fix their their water systems, um, at what point do people say, it's time to go to court? It's time to, to get a judge involved. What are the pros and cons, in your view, of, of taking the fight to court? That's a good question. I'm so glad you asked it because I was just having this conversation before I jumped on with you today. There are pros and cons. Um, You know, these litigations can take 10 and 15 years. And in the interim, they don't get cleaned up and people get sick. I don't know that that's a solution. I've worked with these communities when they're that harmed and their wells are destroyed and their houses are destroyed and their lands are destroyed that litigation ensues. Now, back in the 90s, that PG&E case went pretty quick, four years. But then on the second case that I did against PG&E for groundwater contamination took 10. And when these communities get money, which can help them relocate and have a home again and insurance, they'll tell you that justice was served, but was it? What they want is that this doesn't happen in the first place. So if that question that you just posed about the law does or doesn't help, we have antiquated laws. When I talk about antiquated infrastructure, we have antiquated laws and policies that may have been all good and well intended 50, 75 years ago, but aren't even applicable to today that need to be challenged and changed. We have to go for the solution. And, you know, on the other side of the aisle here, let's talk about these companies they have every room to move and work with its people and they have the technology and they have the person power and they have the money power to step in here and take this on and begin a process of cleaning up America's water. So sometimes the lawsuits are effective and sometimes they can take forever and sometimes we never get anywhere because of a statute issue or a law that was created that shouldn't even be in existence anymore. So it's a little bit of both, but I want to open the door. And I've always believed this, you know, these companies and like PG&E and their board, they have an opportunity to do the right thing. And, you know, and you have the funds to begin to change out your infrastructures and not just wait and rely on some state or federal funds to do that for you when you already have the money. So I call upon them to rise up with us and work with us. You really look at it down to the people. This is what I want to talk about over and over again. 
Superman's not coming, but what we, the people, we need to believe in ourselves that you can. And the people and companies together keep that economic wheel moving. With that transparency can catch pollution issues or problems in their own community and act at a local level. Would nationalizing some of these larger companies that uh, issue some of these pollutants help in any way? In other words, if you remove the profit motive from these companies to pollute, uh, would that help stop stop the the pollution at its source? Well, that's an excellent question. (laughs) That's a political one that just may be right out of my brain. I'm not sure I would know how to answer that because... I don't know. I think you ask excellent questions, and this is a conversation that needs to have. Does it make somebody want to hide things more often? This is an excellent question. It's a lack of transparency. And sometimes they'll start hiding it for that reason. So I want to find a way, you know, let's talk about crossing the aisle and working together. Well, you got a lot of companies in industry and 3M and DuPont and stuff, and even with the people if you'd all come down here with the people and work with them on cleaning up the, the farmer's land and the farmer's water, we'd make some progress. But that question was a smart one. I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I should step into that one. It, it is a very, I, I will admit it, it is kind of a political question. You you run the risk of irritating one, one side or the other. Um, but, it was a good one, though. But, I liked but it. Well, it's interesting to um, to think about profit motive, right? Because when, when you know, even when you go to court and you win and there's a there's a settlement, like we, my producer and I, we the, she did the math and the math turned out to be like, okay, so for a company like Tyson, right? The math was they make $11 billion a year, a $7.5 million fine is like a $34 parking ticket for someone who makes $50,000 a year, right? It's nothing. So they, they, they could factor in the cost of, of fines for polluting into their, their way of doing business. And that's uh, kind of a scary thought, given how many big companies are out there, you know, just fly swatting these lawsuits away. Absolutely. And sometimes they can't fly swat them away. So it makes me think she's talking about Tyson, which is true. Sometimes the law can, can have a little more leverage with them. Um, look, there's two things here in the law. Let's not overlook criminal charges. We're watching this happen in Flint because Flint, they switched river waters. It's bad enough that companies may have had an accident and poisoned you or clearly knew something was going on and they covered it up. But to find out that your own municipality, water operator, your own health department, all the way up to your own governor covered it up is a real sock in the gut. And they are now all facing criminal charges. Some are already convicted. That is a deterrent, I think, and one we don't often address. But in the lawsuits where money is had, um, there's all kinds of ways they can get out of that. And then they never learn a lesson. I'm thinking that pg e might have this time. You know, they got sued in Hinckley, and that was $333 million. They've, they've got, you know, $50 million in defense costs, and they're on a corporate books, a cleanup for 100 years. What's that going to cost you, $100 million? I mean, you did it in Kettleman, so now we're into the billions. You blew up San Bruno, all because of failing infrastructure, that you clearly had the profits to reinvest in building out this infrastructure. If you would do the right thing on the up front, not kick it down the line, you're going to save the environment. You're going to you're going to save people's lives. Oh, by the way, you're going to save your company a whole lot of money and still make money. But they don't see it that way. Safety 
people, infrastructure on the up front. Stop kicking the can down the line. And if you don't like being sued, then stop doing what you're doing. That is a sound bite if I ever heard one. <laughs> if you don't like being sued, knock it off. <laughs> well, let me ask you uh, uh, about um, one th- one piece of advice you, you give to those who uh, would be activists. Uh, and that is to know your why, know why they are doing something. Uh, why did you think that was important enough to, to, to mention in the book? I think it's everything. Um, I experienced it my whole life. You know, um, we have to look at ourselves and oftentimes we don't because there's something negative that's either been said to us or we think of ourselves, you know, I never wanted to always raise my hand in class because I was a dyslexic. And if I got the answer wrong, what I'd get laughed at. We kind of have to get past ourselves. So what if you ask a question and you're wrong? This is how we engage. This is how we learn. And what if you do ask a question and you're right? See, this is the moment where you can believe in yourself, uh, stand with yourself. You know, you got to stop waiting for someone. You're going to have to make that decision yourself that you want to get involved. It's exciting. It's passion. This is our mojo. And let's be honest about it. I mean, think about what motivates you every single day. We're participating in a pretty crazy world right now. I think we all know it. We all feel it. It's just happening. What motivates you to get up every day? Um, Because you love living or you love going to work. Yes, you could love making money, right? You love your family. You love the environment. You love the ocean. You love to go out and, you know, sail for the afternoon, or you love to be able to to go on a vacation. I mean, these are things that we love to do. We like to do. It's our passion. We care about our family, our health, our welfare. We're smart enough to know water is life. We're smart enough to know that problems are going on. And, And just, oh my gosh, sometimes we just come from such a place of anger and resentment and hate. This is getting us nowhere. You need to ask yourself why it is you want to get involved. And that passion and compassion is often born out of inspiration and love for just, man, I got up today and what a great day it is and and what a great day it can be and that you need to, to get involved. And part of that is about loving yourself. I've learned so much about myself and I continue to do through the environment. We are connected to the environment. We can't forget that. And we've been lost from it. And I think lost from ourselves and COVID put a real hard stop on everybody. And I think that all of us are reassessing and looking at what our priorities are and nothing is more valuable than life and our health and our land and our water and the air we breathe. We need to reconnect to this planet that we all call home and all of us need to do our part and can play a part and have a role in turning the tide and giving nature a break so we can move on into a more sustainable world. I'm in my legacy phase of life and I do ask myself what will be my legacy. And I have four grandchildren now and I want them to be able to enjoy what I did. Running on the beach, having clean water to drink, be fascinated by the the fireflies and the tadpoles and the environment and every single thing around you and having fresh air and being able to grow good food and eat well and have a happy life. In this book, you mentioned, uh, in addition to that legacy, a legacy project. Uh, the, I believe it was your website where you're uh, asking people to report what they know about the water in their area. Can you talk a little bit about that project? 
Yes, yeah, so that is my map that has been in the making for quite some time, and it's called Community Health Book. And if you go, you won't get into it right now because we are almost ready to take it live. And I think we can't send in help, right, if we can't see where you are. And so what happened with Community Health Book is almost like a Facebook of health. And people will report to me all the time something that's going on. And I started to recognize patterns. Wait a minute, I saw somebody from that town write me a week ago. I'd run a query and I'm like, oh my gosh, four people from the same town have written me. And I began to plot it on a map. And I turned around one day and there was hundreds of reports that were dots on the map. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm visual. And I'm like, what is that? And it just keeps building and building and building. I think we're coming into citizen science. I think we are coming into citizen reporting and self-reporting. You know, we have HIPAA requirements. Uh, a lot of reporting gets to a state. It doesn't get shared with another. People migrate away. They can come to the map and go, wow, that's interesting. There's 14 reports of people that have illnesses. And we're not going to just open it up and share all that information. But we'll let you know there's a report, what we found, what the chemical can be. 22 people have said, you know, they're concerned, they have health issues, and someone can check back and go, I grew up there. Oh my gosh, I have the same report problem and report. It, it's about numbers. Everything in, in the work that I do is about numbers, whether the level's low or the level's high changes things. It's, it changes how science sees it. Well, I think a lot of people are going to leave this conversation motivated to act. What do you think of the water filters that you can buy in the grocery store? Are, are, is there a brand that works really well? Do they do none of them work well? What do you think? As I said, reverse osmosis, and there's some, you can get reverse osmosis on your house. Um, people with well water have um, the, the lights and reverse osmosis that gives them pretty good assurance that whatever's in there, any filtration, even reverse osmosis, if you have lead levels as high as Flint did, you're gonna be changing those filters about every half hour on the hour. Mm -hmm. So a reverse osmosis, again, at the house, there are ones that you can put on your sink that can give you assurance from the kitchen tap that every day you're getting a jug of clean water. That is the best way, in our opinion, is to treat water for any or all contaminants. And when you say reverse osmosis, uh, are we including in that like Brita filters, like the very simple Brita filters that you can have a picture that is of? Not or... a re that is no. not a reverse osmosis. That is a filtration system that can remove chlorine or a smell, uh, possibly low levels of lead. Um, but when you're getting into the plethora of chemicals that we do see, reverse osmosis is the safest way. And it runs through. So like some chemicals, you need a resin. Other chemicals need uh, charcoal filtration. Other chemicals would need, you know, a coconut shell. And those individual ones, and it's not that they're bad, and you may only have one small problem in your water and unhappy with the Brita, but it is not a reverse osmosis. I see. So if you, if you get your water tested and found out what was in it, you would be able to better pair whatever filtration device you need for your particular kind of water. Absolutely. And well water, for sure. We see many people with on well water that have reverse osmosis systems at, at the house and they're big and they can be expensive, but it provides them a comfort that whatever's coming into that well water, because it's not regulated, is in fact being filtered. 
There are a lot of filtration systems out there. I encourage, I never want to say any one works better than the other, but there is large differences in them. Do your research, get that water quality report. If you, again, I really mean this. If you don't know what it means, you can send it to us and we'll help you along to figure that out. Well, Aaron Brockovich, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us for Writers on a New England Stage. Well, it was great to be here. That was author and environmental activist Aaron Brockovich, recorded live in front of a virtual audience as part of our series, Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between the Music Hall in Portsmouth and NHPR. Join us for our next live event on Thursday, May 27th. I'll be interviewing novelist Kevin Kwan, whose new book, Sex and Vanity, touches on the same issues of race, sex, and class that made his debut novel, Crazy Rich Asians, so incredibly successful. Tickets for this virtual event are available at themusichall.org. The Music Hall's executive director is Tina Sautel, and HPR's president is Jim Schachter. The Music Hall director of communications and community engagement is Monty Bohannon. NHPR's producer of Writers on a New England Stage is Sarah Plourd. NHPR's director of communications and marketing is Patricia McLaughlin. Itaj Ismailova is NHPR's marketing and communications coordinator. And the Music Hall literary producer is Brittany Wasson. Special thanks to NHPR's environment and energy reporter, Annie Ropeek. If you'd like to report a concern about your local water system to NHPR, you can contact our newsroom. Just send an email to news at nhpr.org. Our theme music for Writers on a New England Stage is written and performed by Dreadnought. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for listening to Writers on a New England Stage.